What's the real secret to thrive as a CEO of a leading company? Ask this question and we had such amazing conversation with Linsley Ruth, the former CEO of RS Group, one of the leading companies in the world for electrical industrial component. So we discussed a lot about culture as the major enabler, but also what's the impact you know, of being a CEO on you as an individual, on your career, but also on your personal relationship, on your health. So we discuss a lot of many, many things that are very important if you're leading a company, especially during this such an incredible, uncertain time. So stay with me. This is an amazing episode. And remember, we also are on YouTube, so you can actually see me and Lindsay in a conversation together. So ready? Let's go. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the World Class Leader Show. And in today's episode, I'm really happy to have with us Lindsay Ruth. Lindsay is an award-winning CEO and a highly qualified industrial distribution executive. And he was most recently CEO of RS Group. For those people, they understand the industry world, they definitely are familiar with RS, so former Electro Components PLC, a global omni-channel solutions partner for industrial customers and suppliers, and is more responsible for improving the financial performance of the group and instilling a renewed focus on putting the customer and supplier back at the heart of the business. He led the turnaround of the underperforming business and working with the broader team has created a strong vision and purpose for the company, leading the company as well from the FTSE 250 to the FTSE 100 in just six years. Increased sales by more than 300%, profit by more than 500%, and increase the share price by more than 6%. So prior joining RS, he was also executive vice president of Future Electronics. And during his 12 years tenure, Lindsay held several senior positions and was a vital member of the core leadership team. And before joining Future, Lindsay also held senior positions with TTI Inc. and Solectron Corp. as director of global accounts. He has been incredible, you know, a successful CEO, as you probably can hear, has been recognized as well as Electronics Company CEO of the Year in 2017 by Global CEO Excellence Awards and was the number one ranked best CEO in 2018, all Europe's small and mid-cap industrial. He's also an author of Becoming First Choice, a book on corporate personal transformation, releasing in the latter part of 24. So congratulations for that. It also is the founder of First Choice Global Solutions, a new distributor advisory firm focused on M&A, strategy, and leadership development. He's also co-founder of Dynamic Partners, an emerging organization with a world-class operational leadership team. But we can definitely stay for a lot of time here, but we don't want to do too much. But I think there is enough, first of all, to say, Lindsay, super congratulations for your career and thanks for being with the show today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you today. And I, I appreciate the congratulations on my career, but I just like to say I still feel like I'm only getting started. I'm not done yet. <laughs> Where are you in the world, Insight, for the audience to know? Well, today I'm in Texas. I'm in the United States, uh, where I've been for the last few months. Excellent. So, Linson, one thing I would like to pick up from your career is you've been an incredible and successful CEO. What has been the major driver for that? I mean, how can you keep the the flame, you know, inside of you to keep achieving and keep wanting to do new things? Well, well, a couple of things. One is, you know, if I if I go back 
to when I was 13 years old. I had a goal, and I actually shared this when I became an Eagle Scout as part of the process, of a desire to, to do two things. One was to win the Heisman Trophy in the U.S., which was the, the top award for college football for a player. Um, right. I didn't come close. Um, I, I wasn't that good. Um, but that's, you know, when you're 13 years old, you, you can do anything. But believe it or not, I had a desire to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So FTSE 100, quite similar. I had a goal from an early age. And so I had great experiences, great mentors throughout my life. But I had a clear goal in terms of what I wanted to do. Um, and it was really more of leading an organization and being a part of business. And so I knew what I wanted to do because people always say, well, you couldn't have known you always wanted to do this. And they mm. said, well, actually, I did. Um, my grandfather was in the business that I'm in today. He had started a company in 1935. So at the age of 13, I had started working for him. So I had some very clear goals. But for me, it was more about having a passion for business. And I don't think anyone should start with the intent like I did. It was a mistake looking back and thinking you want to be a CEO. I think it's one of those things that happens. Um, and, and that role's changed. You know, the days of the all-star CEO, I think, are in the past. And it's more today of being a steward and understanding your role in an organization uh, and the time you have in that organization, what you're doing to contribute um, to that organization. No, it makes absolutely sense. So there is a drive. There is also, it sounds like a lot of uh, ambition, but also clarity on who you wanted to become. And uh, you've been really consistent and, 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 and again, be really driven to the ambition that you had, which I think is a great, is a great point for any successful leader out there. Um, so you've been with RS seven years, more or less. Six. Yeah, almost eight. Almost eight years. Before almost eight years. Yeah. Sorry. Just, just, just to re remember what I just said is always complicated when there are so many great, great things, great achievements. So it's actually quite interesting because it's also beyond the average tenure of these. You know, in these days of CEOs, you know, they say that the the typical average tenure of CEOs is about three, four, five, six. Eight is already outside of the current, you know, uh, current metrics or kind of current average. What has been the secret for you to stay so long in a CEO? It was just about you because you wanted to. It was all about the results that you achieved. Well, so what is the secret? Because look, there are so many CEOs out there, primarily in this uh, in this audience. They actually have fear of not being able maybe to stay longer, or maybe they don't want to stay longer as a CEO because maybe they want to change or maybe they want to try something different or maybe they are concerned that at some point the board or shareholders, you know, they will maybe make different decisions. So what's the secret to stay longer as a CEO? Well, I, I think there are a few things. One, one I think you've got to approach the role thinking, um, I want to never accept status quo. And, and regardless of how good or how bad you might be at a given point in time in terms of uh, the performance of the business, you're never as good as you think you are and you're never as bad as you think you are either. But you should always have ultimately a desire to continue to drive improvement in whatever you do. So my view is uh, in today's world, if you're in a, a market where you have low market share, you have huge opportunity for growth every two to three years you're essentially creating a new company. So mm. the needs 
today versus your needs and the demands of the business in three years are going to be very different. So if you have that attitude that every year you're learning something new and, and every year you're adjusting your plan with your vision unchanged, but you're adjusting the way you go about it and you're adapting to the market, you're creating new opportunities. And that requires, uh, I, I think, a new focus and renewed leadership as you move forward. So to me, it wasn't as if I had the same job for eight years. It was like I was a CEO of a new company every three years. And in fact, I often would refer to the company as Nuco because, you know, you want to still be like Jeff Bezos said on day one of this journey to where you're really focused on, you know, how do we keep ourselves at the cutting edge and aware of what's happening in the market and give ourselves the flexibility to adjust and adapt to what we have to do to be successful in the future. I love that. It's actually the first time that I hear that. Now, look, it sounds like normal, ordinary, but it's not. You know, this idea of thinking as if you are starting a new company within the same company within several multiple times. I like it. I think it sounds, it seems to me a very interesting approach and potentially give access to people to think differently about the role and the impact they are making. Because I assume that by thinking that way, you recreate it every single time, you know, what is the definition of success for the organization? What does it mean be impactful in that role? Because it sounds like you are starting again, either from scratch or from a different point of view, right? That's right. And, and you have to step back and say what worked in the past may not always work in the future. And you got to be open to new ideas. And you got to think about um, namely, how would you disrupt your business? If you're stepping back as a competitor saying, I want to win market share from them, how would you go about doing it? And you got to think about it. I remember years ago, back to the year 2015 in the summer, we interviewed someone. This is a great story of, of the UK. We had a business in the UK that was growing at, at the rate of GDP. So some years it was up 2 to 3%. Some years it was down 1% to 2%. This is over a 15-year horizon. So the UK business, which was the crown jewel within our business and had been, always was, that business had really plateaued over the course of a decade or so. So when it came time to find a new leader for that business, the company really struggled. Internally, nobody wanted it because they saw it as a dead-end job. And externally, they were going through interviewing people, but people weren't really excited about it because there's no life in that business. And I came across someone through the interview process that our team had interviewed. And they said to me, they said, look, you don't want to interview the person. He's really critical about the business. So don't go downstairs and meet with him. I said, I really want to meet him. All, all the more reason to meet him if he's critical of our business. So I go and I sit down with him, the same as Mike England. And I sat with Mike and Mike had been at a competitor and he had a presentation and all the ways he was winning market share from us and all the areas where we were weak and not doing well, he knew how to disrupt our business. We hired him on the spot. And you know what? Within six months, our UK business was back in growth and he didn't know what could not be done. So he had the attitude of, well, we're a small player in a big market. It doesn't matter if this is our biggest market in the world in terms of, mm. of our market share. There's still plenty of room for growth. And it wasn't long before he had the, the business in double digits growth for the first time in 20 years. So to me, you got to step back and look at what do you do to disrupt your business? How can you do it? How can you change the mindset and mentality? And that all starts with having the right leadership. 
that excites me and in, in this business. And it all comes down to that quite often, having the right leadership with the right plan and the right level of execution to be successful. So it sounds like selecting the right leaders around you that has been always a top priority for you. Is that Yeah, I think I think it all comes down to people. You know, people will often say, you know, what what regret do you have in business? And I, I usually say not hiring talent fast enough. So getting the right people in the right roles is is absolutely critical. Um, the great movie, I think a lot of people are talking today about Boys in the Boat and a movie about the 1936 Olympics and a team from the University of Washington. It's all about getting the right people in the right seats. And you have to do that as leaders. Yes. And you have to certainly have the right leader who's giving direction. But when you have the right leadership team that all understands their role and they're rowing in the same direction with the same goals, right? Then you're able to drive and be pulled with a vision um, as opposed to being pushed to, to that finish line. Yeah, and based on all my work I've you know I've done with executive teams, I can definitely say a couple of things building on what you say. One is I've seen some CEOs taking too long before changing the composition of the executive team and realizing too late, you know, there was not the right team for the CEO. And sometimes it's based on bias, based on expectation, based on, you know, genuine trust in others, you know, to elevate, to perform better. That's one element. And the other element, element I think, is also the fact that finding those, you know, that alignment that you're talking about sounds easy on paper, but sometimes it's not, especially when you when you start working as a CEO in in an organization, when you're inheriting a team, for example, that maybe has been as work in a different manner, in a different ways, maybe in a silos organization, that level of alignment is way more difficult than people think because everybody comes from his perspective, mindset, but also from a different experiences of the organization, right? That's right. And, and first of all, in terms of the leadership team, when you go into a role as a new CEO or a CEO in a new organization, it's much easier to change the leadership in the first year before you get to know people well. The, the longer you're within a company, the more you get to know people, the more it becomes yeah. personal, the more difficult yes. it is to change up. Right? Yes. The general rule of thumb is be fast to fire, slow to hire. So by that, I'm saying if it's not working out, you, you always, my belief is you always give someone a second chance. You work with them, you coach them, you go through that process as we all do with development plans, et cetera. But you know what? If it's not working out, your gut tells you it's not working out. Typically, it's not going to work out. The reality is you're doing yourself a disservice by keeping someone on and giving them multiple chances, not only to the company, but to that individual. So my view has always been it's not working out. Help that individual find another role, take care of them, make sure that, that they're okay. Um, but the company's probably suffering uh, as well. And, and it's something that you need to be quick to make those moves and not sit on it too long. At the same time, you got to be slow to hire. And, and to the exact point that you're making around alignment, you know, you got to do all you can up front to make sure that you'll never know for sure. Right, but to make sure that you're getting the right person, and not just in a role of someone that's reporting to you, but also a role on potentially your board of directors, uh, a role anywhere within this ecosystem uh, 
um, that you're dealing with to make sure that you as the CEO are working with people that share the same values, that have the same vision, that are not selfish, that can work in a team and that have the right traits and characteristics to be success, that share the vision that you have and the company has moving forward. And that's not always easy. I get that. Right. Uh, before getting into, you know, your focus now in the new firm that you're creating, I'm just curious about what you said. Is he, how has been impactful in your turnaround strategy when you turn things around really for RS, as you know, I said in the, in the beginning, how critical has been the executive team in that journey for the turnaround? Or has been primarily, you know, going in different direction, meaning you had other specific areas where you need to generate breakthroughs or making major changes. If that's it, if that's actually the answer, what have been the major areas for a turnaround that could be useful for other CEOs out there that maybe they're leaving a turnaround right now and say, okay, where shall I go first? Because everything, you know, is not working or there is a burning platform. So where should we go? Yeah, I, I, I think the, the first thing you've got to do, if you're walking into a new company, and I, I think regardless of where the company is, to a certain extent, there's always going to be areas that need to be turned around. So I think the first thing you do is you've got to understand the environment, the landscape you're in. So you don't make any changes without understanding the business. And to do that, you can read all the reports you want. And I often say, um, you know, you could, you could take a customer and you can take every, every data point you want. You can take every spreadsheet, every, every single analytic that you can come up with and review it. You give me an hour with the customer and I'll know more than you. So I think, you know, there's nothing more valuable than actually going out to the physical locations of your business and just talking to people. And that's exactly what I did when I started within the company. I traveled around the world, went to our largest locations and, and went and met the people and just sat down and said, tell me about the business. What are we missing? Do you understand what your role is? Do you understand the vision? You know, what, what are the opportunities that you see? What are the obstacles that are holding you back? And so with that, and you begin to identify the kind of the major themes and, and obviously getting the right leadership is critical. Right? And, and I would say that's that's certainly one of the top three actions, but also making sure that you have the right priorities in the business, that you know the customer has the right level of attention, et cetera, that there's accountability in the business, you have a streamlined structure. All of those things are important, but ultimately I think it comes down to, do you have the right leadership? Do you have the right strategy plan? Is there a vision in the business? And those are all things that, yeah, you can walk in with a cookie cutter approach or have some type of strategy or document that comes from a, uh, say, uh, a McKinsey or someone like that. But you know what? All that's worthless if you don't get in the business and understand exactly what's happening. Because the key to all this at the end of the day is getting buy-in as you move forward. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm particularly... Uh, happy to hear your approach in the first months. And now, look, here's the thing. I strongly believe that uh, CEOs, uh, there are many CEOs that are spending too much time, and I've write a lot about this, spending a lot of time in great meetings with their team, etc. They're really spending a very little time with the front line. 
And and that, by the way, there are researchers now, they're also proving that to the extent there are some CEOs that are actually spending you know, less than 7% with the front line and being busy with other things. I strongly believe that is wrong. I strongly believe that their relation with the front line must be, it includes customer, of course, must be really a living habit that, you know, CEOs must have, not just at the beginning. But I like the, the, the fact that for you has been critical at the beginning. So if there is one single thing, you know, imagine the success that you made in the turnaround. Besides the leadership team, is there anything like one thing that you learned that is incredibly successful during turnaround? It could be just a mindset. Or could be just a specific habit. It could be some specific practice. But is there anything from that experience that comes to mind that say, yes, that was the thing that made the difference? Yeah, and and and, and that's a great question, and it's something that I've often thought about. And and you'll hear different things based on the story of the turnaround yeah. from different people. But to me, it, it all starts with culture. And something that I realize, you know, you step back and we talk about culture. You look at engagement surveys and you might read the comments on them and you internalize that and you think about it. But to your point, if you're sitting in the office and you're reading surveys and then you, you want to get a team together, and this is what a lot of companies do, and in particular, I see a lot of companies in the UK do this. Let's form a committee, culture committee. Let's then identify the actions of which we think are going to improve the next survey. Let's get a change management process in place that we can go influence change. Let's come up with subcommittees to own each individual action that we create. And let's have a very robust process around reporting cadences. So that way we need to have weekly calls monthly summaries, and then let's do a quarterly report to the board and then pat ourselves on the back after we implement all those, only to see our results potentially decline. Okay? And you step back and say, why do you need all that crap? Um, why don't you just get out in the business and understand what people are feeling and what they see? And I, I always say this, you know, you cannot, and this was a lesson learned, that you can talk about all those things that you can have every HR consultant in the world come through and talk about how to improve your culture. But until you get out in the business and really understand your culture, you can't change it. You can't influence it. And people have to, it's one thing to tell people what to do, but they have to want to do it. And being a great leader is about convincing others on what needs to be done, not telling them what needs to be done. You know, this isn't the military. This isn't a government bureaucracy, et cetera. This is a for-profit business. You got to get people that have a passion for doing what they do and they have to know what to do, but they have to want to do it. And, and I think ultimately, here's the difference. You don't go out and see culture. You can't look at a report and look at the numbers of culture. You have to literally go out to the locations and feel what the culture is like. So you don't see it, you feel it. And you know what? You can tell a change between a bad culture and a good culture just by walking into a location. You can sense if you go onto a sales floor and it sounds like a library, or you go into a sales floor, floor and it's like uh, the sound you would get at a Premier League match. Right? <laughs> is there excitement, et cetera? Right? Which environment do you think is going to be the higher performing environment, right? And, and to me, you know, culture comes down to simply looking at 
uh, performance and morale. It's great to have high morale, but if you have low performance and high morale, you're essentially just a country club, right? How do you get to the point where you've got high performance, high morale, and that's what it's all about. So if I look back and say, what is the one thing? It is absolutely without a doubt, culture. And if I look at what we did and my goal was to become first choice, and that's always been my focus in any business, so become first choice for your stakeholders. In the case of the RS Group's business, the stakeholders were the community, investors, suppliers, customers, and employees. And if you said, who comes first? Oftentimes, people will say, well, the customer signs the paycheck. I'd say, yes, I agree with that. However, in my world, the employee comes first. Why? Because if you want to offer world-class external service, if you want to offer a world-class experience to all of your stakeholders, it starts at home first. So it's very difficult to convince an inside salesperson or someone in the warehouse to do their job well, to focus day in and day out if they're working in a facility where the lights don't work or there's stains on the carpet or they don't know where to hang their coat when they come in in the morning. So you need to focus and make sure that you offer a world-class experience internally, take care of employees, build that culture, and then you can build those expectations around offering a world-class experience externally, becoming first choice for all those other stakeholders. So I think that's critical. It took me a while to learn that. You know, it's one thing to talk about. It's another to do it. And, yes. and uh, I will never forget um, the emotional connections that, uh, that I share with the people um, and the stories that I heard from people within the business um, and the challenges that they faced and how we could potentially help them overcome those challenges by making their work life experience a much better experience uh, and taking a lot of stress off, off their shoulders. Yeah, look, it's brilliant. And by the way, it's music for my years because you really embrace, you know, to me, the ideal CEO, the approach that CEOs really should have and why that works. You're just demonstrating, for example, which is, I wouldn't take it for granted. You're just demonstrating that culture is a catalyst for better performance. While in the business world, Many people, many leaders, they think that culture is a nice thing, like a side dish, while the performance goes somewhere, somewhere else in a different direction. Totally misconception. And you're just demonstrating why culture actually has the major, such a very pivotal point. The other thing I would like to, that I take from what you said, and I, by the way, I endorse it 100%. You said one thing that to me is foundation. So you said, you can really change the culture. And I do agree with you because to me, culture is something viral. Culture is what is already happening. But what you can do, you can shape what is, what is already happening. If people can see a different perspective so they can change their habits, so they can perform in a different way. Nonetheless, what we also see, I'm sure that you agree with me, Lindsay, is Typical approach of cultural transformation is a typical top-down approach where CEOs decides, you know, on a piece of paper, you know what, we're going to change the culture for whatever reason. And that is the new culture. Just do it. Just guys do it because I told you that is a new culture. Good luck with that because I think you said something incredible, profound. You said 
people, they need to want this. They need to want to change their culture because the only way to influence the culture is by having these people. They do believe there is a different way of doing things. How much I love that. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Um, and building on your last point, and I love that, you know, becoming the first choice, becoming the first choice. And by the way, all of us remember probably they read somewhere, you know, I think it was Aya, I don't know if it was Mario to Aya. They said, treat your, you know, treat your employees as you want to treat your customer. And essentially it's putting the, you know, the employees at the core. And I love that. You wrote a book about it. Um, and also you found a company that has the same name. And I don't think it's a coincidence, right? First choice, global solutions. So what you are aiming for? So what is your next step now? Why are you creating a new advisory firm? Well, I, I think, you know, my, my ultimate goal is um, to, to look at how I can influence and impact others, create jobs, create opportunities, whether it is um, working with companies, working with leaders, helping to develop, coach, mentor the industry's leaders of the future and or acquiring companies and stepping back into operational leadership roles um, moving forward. So, you know, the older I get, I think the wiser I, I become. And, and, and of course, lots of people have said that. But you step back and, and you realize, you know, I, I spent my career um, having uh, success at various places. But at a very early age, I was quite successful. And I found um, when I was in my 20s, you know, I, I always, my goal was to be older. And now that I'm older, my goal is to be younger. So um, <laughs> I would say it, at this point in my life, I'm happy just where I am. But, but I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of lessons. And I'd really like to multiply my impact by sharing those with others. And, I, and look, I think at the end of the day that um, you can say whatever you want. And one of the, the, the issues I think a lot of CEOs have, and, and it's to your point around culture, you can't just sit in an office and say, here are the things that I want to see happen, right? You've got to actually teach not by words, but by actions. So actions speak louder than words for sure. And you've got to, to be able to lead by example to coach. I've got that experience and to be able to help others, you know, to, to, to uh, help them translate their words into actions and then put it to work is, is really important and critical. And, so for me, um, I think I'm an entrepreneur at heart, but I love to see, you know, what, what satisfies me. It's not the numbers at the end of the day and, and all the numbers that you talked about within um, RS earlier, but it, it's, it's the shift in culture. You know, if you've got 8,000 employees, right, which we had, um, I kind of looked at that and said, we're not supporting 8,000 employees. We're supporting 32,000. And what I mean by that is if every employee has a partner and yeah, if those two have, have two dependents, two kids, it could, by the way, it doesn't have to be children. It could be, it could be parents. It could be in-laws. It could be um, other, other family members, which you see in a lot of countries where there are extended families within one roof, right? I think, you know, our role is as a, as a company um, to provide as much as we can to support that ecosystem of the employee. And, and so what, what really I kind of looked at and said was a true measure of success was how we took care of our employees, our families, and how we took care of them, not just financially, but providing that mental support, 
um, and also creating jobs. So creating opportunities, creating jobs, creating challenges, reducing turnover, to me is what it's all about. And, and a byproduct of doing those things is improved performance, right? It's about people, profit, and planet. But it starts with people. You can make more profit if you have the right people pulling in the right direction, which then you can contribute to the planet. But you can't do those things independently. And by the way, you know, I've seen a lot of companies, and you, sh you sure have too, that think that you can improve the culture by buying it and by paying for it. And you can't do that. Just saying, we're going to offer free pizza on Fridays or we're going to offer sodas in the, in the canteen. That's not good enough. Zero That's impact. Change the culture. Zero impact. These are the perks and completely useless from that perspective. From that perspective, Agreed. completely useless. I do agree. Well, that's normally the, the part where, with all my respect, many HR people tend to go. So they think, you know, assuming that they will help. And I appreciate it's a mitigation strategy, but normally there are deeper, deeper issues, you know, that, 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 that are happening in the organization that can be solved with that. No, I do agree 100%. Uh, Lisa, if you think, uh, I have a last question about the CEOs. Look, you know, my book is about writing the future CEOs. Well, what is the new future? What are the new CEOs? What they need to be in order to be impactful comparing to the old school CEOs? And I explain why that's important, the performance. Uh, but if you have an advice, one single advice, besides what we already shared, right? So choosing the right people, looking at the culture, you know, as a first step. What other maybe one or two advice or maybe just one biggest advice that you would like to give to the CEOs out there to be future proof ready, to be ready for what is coming to them, given the you know, higher level of challenges, higher level of complexity and uncertainty. Is there anything from your experience that would you like to share? I have said this to um, hundreds of people, to dozens of, of new CEOs um, over the last 10 years, and that is that when you get to the top, the higher you go within a company, the lonelier the job becomes. And there is no more lonely job within an organization, in my opinion, than being the CEO of a company. And by that, I mean, you've got to be careful in terms of who you trust, what information you share. So you're walking around carrying the burden of many people. You're carrying a lot of thoughts in your head in regards to strategy. You really can't afford to have a bad day because if you do, someone thinks there's something wrong with the company. Uh, you're careful in terms of sharing vulnerability and stories. And, you know, you're always, you're always, always, always watching what you do and what you say and knowing that there are people out there that are watching, et cetera. So with that. And actually, they're watching you more than you think, by the way. So absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know what? You can control what you can control. You don't live your life for others, and you never yeah. should. And yeah. you shouldn't be overly concerned yes. about what other people think. And that's one of the things I had to overcome um, certainly earlier, it, and it took years to overcome that. And some would say I never overcame it. And that's trying to please others more so than looking and trying um, to, to make sure that, that I'm, I'm in good shape and that I'm happy. So, you know, I think that's, that's a challenge a lot of us have is, is making sure that, um, that others are satisfied with, with what we're doing and living for others. And so my one advice or one, one thought would be make sure you always have a coach. 
someone that you can and, and you know, by the way, before I before I move forward, you've got to have a coach that you can connect with. So it's not about their track record and who they've worked with, et cetera. It's who you connect with personally and who who you enjoy talking to and using them as a sounding board that can help you with your performance, that that can help give you tips in terms of little things like have you thought about this when you travel? So it might be health related. Have you thought about this in terms of your schedule? So it could be time management oriented. But having a performance coach, I think today is absolutely critical. And why wouldn't you have one? The expectations are as great as any athlete has or any coach in any sport. So why wouldn't you have a performance coach in business? So to me, that would be the best advice that I could possibly give. Um, and I could give a lot of advice, but that's one that helps. Yeah, and look, of course, you know, based on the work I do, I definitely agree 100%. And but still, you know, there's some perception that CEOs they don't need a coach because they are good enough. And that is a typical misconception. You know, they they exist at that level, which is understandable, but unfortunately it's not necessarily the only perspective about it. So, I'm with you and by the way, here we are creating as well that's something that we not share earlier, Lindsay. We are creating a new community membership for CEOs also to to foster the cooperation, collaboration, and sharing in a very um, safe place what they are going through. So that's something that we are creating as well in my in my world. So and that could be also very critical to solve that problem that you correctly pointed to. And you mentioned performance coaching. And then another angle of performance coach is not just results and strategy and business, but it's also performance for ourselves, right? Out dealing with our own time, as you said, but also dealing with our own, with the pressure, with the stress, with being human, right? At the end of the day. Why that is important? So if you look at yourself or your story, your life as a CEO, how that really helped you to manage your own performance as an individual? before talking about strategy? Well, I think you have to understand um, when when you're younger, you've got all the energy, all the passion in the world. It's <laughs> easy to put in 90, 100-hour weeks. It's it a little bit more difficult as we get older. Um, but I, I think you have to understand um, just the science behind um, uh, what sleep or what lack of sleep, you know, what, what are... What are the implications of of uh, you know, your diet, your habits, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, your exercise routine? You got to understand all these implications to how it physically and mentally impacts you, um, because you are in a high stress job. Regardless, say you know, I'm not sure. I, I'm not aware of a CEO role that I, I, I anyone I've talked to that hasn't had some level of stress. Now, not all stress is bad, of course, as we know, there is good stress. None, but regardless, it, it takes a toll on you physically and mentally, right? And so understanding how to deal with those things, I think, um, can help accelerate your performance. But taking the, the pit stops, taking the time time out, you know, making sure that that it's just not always, you're not always in the go, 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 that you have time to, uh, to reflect, to re-energize, to recharge, um, I think is absolutely critical in any role. And personally, you know, I've suffered from that. Um, I think there were years where um, I would just have four priorities, which would be work, 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 and then family. 
um, and I, I would get those back in shape in the right direction, um, only to lose them six months later. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's a journey that we're on. And you have to constantly reflect and, and make sure that, that you're keeping yourself uh, mentally and physically healthy as you go through that role. And that's where a performance coach can really help, I think, to me the most. So it's not just your ideas and thoughts and bouncing things off of someone, but it's making sure you have that right balance to be able to do, do your job effectively. And you believe well-being right now is misunderstood or not necessarily fully embraced, I would say, from leaders out there. Look, I think my personal perspective, because what you're saying is, again, is very profound because he has a, such a very important toll and impact on our health, and our future. So, but we don't think about, right? Because when we are young and we are, you know, maybe in the 40s or 50s, you know, we are still very eager and want to do more and more and more. Even myself, I don't know, how can I do all of things I do? But, you know, and I don't appreciate the impact of our health until, unfortunately, something happens to us. So I think COVID has finally, you know, the good thing about COVID is probably opened the door to a different approach to well-being in organization. I don't think we are there yet. But I think it start, something started. My concern is now that we are out of COVID, we are going a little bit back to the way how we tend to do businesses. Work, 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 pressure, 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 work hard, work hard, task over task, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that is a topic that you should really start considering more, even for the organizations? Um, I, first of all, I agree with everything you said. I, I think it becomes a topic and then, As we move forward, we revert back to our old ways. And um, instead of learning from um, the virtual lessons that we've all been able to pick up, you know, the, the effective nature of Zoom and Teams and, and how you maybe you don't need to fly everywhere to have a meeting. You can do you can go somewhere and fly once. Once you get to know people, you can now do it on Teams or Zoom. And do you always yeah. have to be in an office to do those things or yes. can you do it at home or somewhere else? Now, these are all lessons that we learned from COVID. My fear is exactly what you just said. The further we get away from it, the more we revert back to the old world. We got to force everyone to come into an office. Forget it. Forget Tuesday to Thursday. It's got to be Monday through Friday. And, you know, we go back through these. Uh, we, we basically recreate the past and not learn from it. Um, I think the best in class companies have learned. Um, and they're putting in practices, they're putting uh, practices in place that will last, that will be long lasting until they adapt to the next uh, wave of, of challenges, et cetera, that help improve it again. And to me, I think well-being is, is uh, under, underappreciated. Um, I, I think it's an area that um, if people, you know, if they have challenges, if they have a disability, The more um, they're, they're more understanding of others that have something similar, right? And so um, I, I think the challenge is that, you know, oftentimes people have a very difficult time with empathy and putting themselves in other people's shoes. Um, and, and really, there's not a whole lot of uh, training, coaching um, programs that focus on helping employees become better at understanding the needs of, of their employees and fellow employees and to understand um, and to be able to 
to really understand how do you develop empathy? Um, because I, I do think it's, it's a skill and I think it is something that can be learned. And to a lot of people, it's innate, but, but I definitely think, you know, to step back and to listen more and talk less and to understand um, the diversity and thought that exists and, um, and to understand the pressures that people are facing is important. You know, the days are gone. The days are long gone of being able to say, well, my job is from eight to five. Uh, I turn it on at 8.01. I turn it off at 4.59 every day. Uh, at five o'clock, my life becomes personal, et cetera. Those days are gone. There's, there's no such thing as work and life. Yeah, it's the balance. all together. Make- you might get work calls when you're out at a kid's birthday party. That might happen so, as a CEO, especially. Right? There's it, it, always going to be those issues where the family might contact you when you're at work and where work might contact you when you're with the family, just an yeah. exa- as an example. It's how you manage those things that's critical moving forward and how you keep that balance. And look, you know, well, I fully agree on on everything. Just one thing that you said that really hit me is the the empathy. How using empathy to understand better where people are also from a from a health perspective. Because especially from a mental health issues, what we know by experience now, the people that are suffering from mental health, they're not really saying this loudly and openly in front of people. But if you approach people with a very curiosity of listening and to understand really what's happening to people, they might potentially open up and talk. And if they don't, they're going to keep their problems and going to get worse. So that is a great, great point to finish this. Uh, Lindsay, last fire chat, very quickly, 10-second question, maybe 20-second answer on three questions for you just to end the show. Um, what has been, if there is one thing that you learn across your career, just one thing that you might remember. The, the one thing I would say is you, you've got to, you got to be willing. It, it's all about risk and reward. I think the best opportunities exist, at least for me, when complexity is at its greatest. And um, the one thing I've learned is to be, to always keep the, the door open to opportunity, to be open-minded. And, and to not be afraid to take risks. Um, and, 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 you know, the older I get, I would say to add to that a second thing, um, the older I get, <laughs> the more I realize that I should have taken better care of myself physically and mentally. And so I talk a lot about becoming first choice within a business, becoming first choice for customers and suppliers and suppliers and societies and customers and ultimately employees. But you know what? What I realized, number one, is you've got to become first choice for yourself. You've got to become first choice for you. And if you're not, what do I mean by that? Don't live for others. Right? Don't, don't go into the role of a CEO worried about uh, um, what the board thinks, what the chair thinks, or what investors think. Um, worry about what you think. Worry about what you're going to do and staying true to your word, to your commitment, and being true to yourself. And to that's me, that's right. what it starts. You know, as CEO, you say, what's the number one trait you think is the best trait or something that every CEO has got to have? I would say number one is self-awareness. You've got to be, you've got to have self-awareness if you want to be successful. 
and if you want to be healthy and if you want to stay healthy. Wonderful, wonderful message. And I think that is an invitation to everyone there in the audience. Is there any book, Lindsay, that you would you recommend because he made a difference in your life or nothing particular comes to mind? Well, and this isn't to promote my book when it comes out. And so I, I, will, leave, I will leave that name out. But, but I would say my own book, not for you to read it, but because personally, I would encourage everyone that might be listening to this to take notes um, so that sometime I, I, you can go back and reflect on what you've done. I had a gentleman tell me recently that his grandchildren gave him something called story. I think it's called storybook for Christmas. And uh, this was last year. And every week he would get a different question about his life. Why did you pick this school? Why did you, mm. why did you go here? Why did you take that trip? And, and uh, every week he would write two to three pages based on a question they'd send. At the end of the year, they sent a book. And he said his grandchildren absolutely loved the book because they learned more about their grandfather. So I would encourage everyone, take notes on what you're doing so that at some point you can go back and learn from what you did. Because here's my experience and the reason why I say my own, um, because the process of, of writing a book gave me a chance to reflect on my life and put it in perspective and structure a plan for the future. So it was really a great opportunity to get rid of stuff. You know, if you, if you go to, if you go through anyone's house or office, you, most people, if, if you're like me, um, have tons of papers everywhere, boxes of papers. I have some boxes that um, I haven't lived in the U.S. for 17 years, but I have boxes that might have started in California, that went to North Carolina, that went to Montreal, that went to London, um, that I never opened uh, throughout those those 17 years overseas or, you know, the 10 years before that might have originated in California in the 90s. And uh, I, I'm a pack rat, so I keep that stuff. So if you look at your office and you say, I want to do a spring cleaning of that office, and you go through, you, you can physically open those boxes, et cetera. Today, where is most of that information? It's in your head, Right. So if you think about it, you got all this stuff up in your head, but do you ever stop and have a spring cleaning of what's in your mind? Do you ever declutter those things? And that's that, what that process of, of putting together a book did for me. It helped me to kind of look at all the things I was stored in my mind, clear it out, look at the priorities and structure a plan for the future. And it's easy to do when you have papers everywhere, but it's more difficult to do when it's in your mind. I love that. It's the power of writing down our thoughts. And all, as I always say, which I don't think is a surprise, that both of us actually are writing the book at the same time. I think what I always say is there is a book inside of everyone here. And uh, it's an opportunity to reconnect with yourself, which I think that is what you're implying, implying in what you just said. That was brilliant. We'll put in anyway, the, the, the link to your book anyway you know, or at least to your profile to uh, so people that can have a look so they can have an understanding who you are, what you're going to do as well as the book. Lindsay, thank you so much for being in the show today. I love the conversation. I was 100% confident that we were going to have a massive, a wonderful conversation as we did. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, I really appreciate it. And just remember that I, the best return, I think, on investment is the happiness that you get from being in a CEO role 
and investing your time and money in others. Perfect end of this episode. Thank you so much for this message. Thank you.